Well, I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4, and you'll need a Bible to follow along as we look at five verses in Philippians 4. So these guys have some Bibles. If you need one, just get their attention as they make their way back, and they'll get one of those to you that's marked for you at Philippians 4. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you because we want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. Philippians 4. The late and great Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer used to say that Americans have two things that they value the most, personal peace and affluence. There appears to be an inverse relationship between those two things. The more we pursue affluence, the less personal peace we have. A survey a few years ago found that people are less happy than they were 50 years ago, despite being three times richer. The report said that polling data throughout the 1950s shows happiness levels above what they are today, suggesting that our extra wealth has not brought extra well-being. In fact, it could be making matters worse. In almost every developed country, happiness levels have remained static or gone down, despite huge increases in income. So money clearly does not produce this personal peace and happiness that everyone longs for. If it did, in fact, Hollywood would have the happiest people on earth. But there's good news, because when asked what does make them happy, almost half of people said that relationships are the most important factor and not money. But the bad news is most people don't have many friends or meaningful relationships. Six out of ten people speak to five friends or fewer each week. A significant decline in personal peace began in the 1970s. And, not coincidentally, those great theologians, the rock group Boston, had a hit song at the time which had the refrain, All I want is to have my peace of mind. So people want personal peace, but they're having a very hard time getting it. And the more we pursue it, the less we have of it. But the one who made us, made us originally at peace with himself and with his world. And God knows why we do not have this peace. And he also knows how we can. And today we continue our series in the book of Philippians. I want you to notice the promise from God from chapter 4 and verse 7. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, how will this elusive peace of mind be yours and mine? How can we know this peace? Well, notice that verse 7 begins with the word and. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. So it connects verse 7 with the preceding verses. And verses 4 through 6 tell us what needs to happen if we're to have this peace. It's saying, do the things commanded in verses 4 through 6 and God's peace will be yours. So I invite you then to follow along as we look At this passage from verses 4 through 7, we have an outline inserted in your program as we do each week. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to get it. 
And we'll look at those points in a moment. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we're asking you for your peace. If we belong to you, you've given us peace with yourself. And now, Lord, in the everyday, the nitty-gritty of living in a sinful and fallen world that impinges itself upon us and that we contribute to in our own sin, we need to make that a reality in our day-to-day lives. And so, Lord, we ask you to instruct us We ask you to grant us attentive minds and open hearts. May we go from today better equipped to appropriate the peace that you promise can be the possession of all of your people day to day. Help us to do that this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We say in that outline, first of all, that Christians do what leads to peace. We do what leads to peace. And the first of the three things that lead to peace is joy. I say in the outline, we practice joy. And I say that because verse 4 of chapter 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So Christians do what leads to peace. And the first of these things that leads to peace is practicing joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. These two sentences tell us three things about joy. I don't have these three things in your outline. But the first is this, that joy is not optional. Because rejoice in verse 4 is simply a command to be joyful. So it's a command, it's not optional. This means that if we're not joyful, then we're disobeying God. Now, part of our difficulty with this is that we associate joy primarily with emotion and whether we feel good about what's going on in our lives. It often does involve good feelings, but not always. And good feelings are not essential to what joy is. The word joy or related terms is used 16 times in the brief four chapters that are this letter of the book of Philippians. And so in our study of Philippians, we've had occasion to define joy already this way. As an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life and that of others. That joy is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life and he's at work in the lives of of others. But how that's expressed is going to depend on the situation. For example, if I've been in a car accident, I'm in an ambulance and I'm on my way to the hospital, I can still have this sense of well-being and delight that God is at work in this, but that doesn't mean I'll be laughing or giddy about where I am. Jesus himself was, according to the Bible, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But joy is based on the fact that God is at work, and that should evoke a sense of delight within us, even if buried beneath the pain physical or otherwise, of what it is we're enduring. It's about what God is doing. God is at work. So, for example, in chapter 1, in verse 4, Paul, who wrote this, says that when he prays for the Christians in Philippi, he does so, quote, with joy. And he does that because God is at work in them. Verse 5 of chapter 1 says he has this joy because of their partnership in the gospel. 
And verse 6 of that chapter says he's confident that the work that God has been doing and continues to do in them will carry on into the future. So he has this sense of delight because God is at work in them. Later in that chapter, he also says that God is at work in him. Even though he, Paul, is under house arrest in Rome while he writes. Chapter 1 and verse 12 says, What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He's saying, despite these circumstances, God is at work in and through me. And then in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, he says some people preach the gospel out of false motives, some out of pure motives. But then in verse 18 says, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And then he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. And then he goes on to say he will rejoice because he knows God will work out his current circumstances for the best. So he's joyful because of God's work in the Philippian Christians. And he's joyful because of God's work in him. And that's why I say that joy is this abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life and that of others. Because joy comes from God, it's God's activity. It's God's activity in us and in others. It's what he has done in the past. It's what he is doing in the present. It's what he will do in the future then we can be commanded to display joy because it's based on the objective work of God. And every person here, no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult it is, you have, if you belong to Jesus Christ, that objective work that has been going on, is going on, and will be going on in your life. So joy is not optional. It's commanded for Christians. Here's a second thing about it. It's based on the Lord's work. Because verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord. We are to rejoice in what he has done. In what he's currently doing. And what the scriptures tell us he will do. So ask yourself, friend, has the Lord done anything for you? Is the Lord doing anything in you? Has the Lord made any promises of the future to you? There are sufficient reasons for joy. If you've come to God through Jesus Christ, it's because in the words of chapter 1 and verse 6, he began a good work in you. We can be joyful because we're saved, because God in his grace has breathed new life into us. We can be joyful because he's taken our sin debt and he paid it on the cross. We can be joyful because he's alive today and he's coming again to receive us to himself so that we will be ever with the Lord. We can be joyful because we've been given a purpose in life. Each of us to be an integral part of what God is doing in his world through his church. We can be joyful because he promises to supply every need that we have, even in times of difficulty. We can be joyful because we have free access to the throne of God to pour out our requests before him. We can be joyful because through pain we are purified and we are transformed every day into the image of God the Son, Jesus Christ, learning to think and talk and act like Jesus. We can be joyful, friends, 
Because whether we live or die, we belong to him. And Paul wrote in this letter, and if we die, it's gain. You see, friends, if we focus on ourselves and our situations, we cannot help but despair. But when we lift our gaze to the Lord and we focus on the fact that he is at work in us and through us, we can have this abiding sense of delight that is joy. So our joy is rooted in the knowledge that there's no detail in life that's beyond the controlling hand of our God. There's no circumstance in life that can slip through his fingers. The one who holds our lives in the palm of his hand is a great God who is infinite in power and in knowledge and in authority. And the one who holds our lives in the palm of his hand is not only a great God, but he's a good God who does all things for our ultimate good and for his glory. And so joy is a command. It's not optional and it focuses on the Lord. Here's the third thing. Joy is to be constant. Because verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. This is why the Bible commands us to be joyful, friends, rather than happy. What's the difference? Happiness has to do with what happens. When things happen the right way, we're happy. But joy can be ours, now get this, no matter what is happening. So consider the example of the author of this letter, Paul. When he visited the city of Philippi to which this letter is sent, he hadn't been there very long when he and his co-worker Silas were arrested, they were beaten, and they were imprisoned. Now, unlike the jails of today, there wasn't even color TV for them to, uh, to watch. And there they are, they're chained in the dark recesses of a damp, rat-infested dungeon. What would be going on with you? Me. Well, here's what was going on with them. Paul and Silas. Acts chapter 16. The guard put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Paul could honestly, authentically say, rejoice in the Lord always. Consider the circumstances as well that Paul was in when he wrote this letter. He had been arrested and imprisoned in Palestine for two years. He finally appealed to Caesar and he was taken to Rome. After going through a shipwreck, he finally arrived. He had been under house arrest for at least two years, chained to a Roman soldier night and day when he wrote this letter to the Philippians. He stood before Nero and now he was sitting awaiting the verdict. Was that verdict going to be life or death? And from these chains, he writes these words, Rejoice in the Lord always. Joy is appropriate in every situation for those in whom and through whom God is at work. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. And verse 4 also says, I will say it again. Rejoice. If we're going to give peace a chance in the title of today's message, if we're going to have personal peace in our lives, we must practice joy. We have every reason to do so in all circumstances. 
And this is so important that it bears emphasis. And so it's repeated. And I will say it again. Rejoice. So if we're going to do those things that lead to peace, the first of those is that we practice joy. Second, in your outline. We practice deference. As we do those things that lead to peace, We practice joy, but we also practice deference. And I say that because of verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So what is the relationship between these? Between displaying, practicing joy and gentleness? Well, hear this. Your spiritual state is not dependent on circumstances, nor is it dependent on people. So you can rejoice in the Lord, whatever's going on. And you can also demonstrate this deference. No matter who's around you, no matter who the people in your life are. We delight even in adverse circumstances and we can be gentle even to adverse people. But if we're controlled by our circumstances. That is, we're happy if what happens is to our liking. Then when things are not as we'd like, we're not only joyless in life, we're irritable in our relationships. So I'm in a bad way, but I don't have a good perspective in those bad things. So I'm joyless, I'm not happy, I'm not focused on the Lord. That in turn has the very real danger of affecting my relationships with others. I've called this deference because this word gentleness has been translated a number of ways over the years. One of those is sweet reasonableness. Let your sweet reasonableness be evident to all. It's an attitude of deference to others. And if you want to know what deference is, it's found in what we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then we're given the supreme example of deference in Christ Jesus. When verse 5 of chapter 2 says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who... Though he were equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, made himself nothing, made himself in the form of a servant. So friends, my and your circumstances are not random. And hear this, neither are the people that God brings into our lives. Sometimes we don't think of it that way. We say, okay, pastor, yeah, you're right. I'm in this situation, my job, uh, my, uh, my illness whatever it may be, and that's a circumstance from God. But we don't think about the fact that God also sovereignly surrounds us with the people who are in our lives as well. So my circumstances are not random, and the people that God brings into my life are not random either. Knowing that God is at work in those relationships changes my attitude in them. So I can be gentle, deferential in all my relationships. In all of my relationships, because notice verse 5 says, let your gentleness, your deference, your sweet reasonableness be evident to all. So we're to be this way with those who love us and those who do not. 
We're to display an attitude of deference to those who are lovable and those who are not. We're to be gentle with believers and unbelievers alike. And as always, the supreme example is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. As he hung on the cross and he poured out his lifeblood for us, deferring to our needs. And then he prayed for those who pierced him. Father, forgive them. Gentleness is an attitude of deference. And just as we can be joyful in our circumstances because we know that the Lord is at work in them, we can be gentle in our relationship because relationships because the Lord is at work in them. And because we know that the Lord is the central player in those relationships. Verse 5 says, Let your gentleness... Let your deference, let your sweet reasonableness be evident to all. And then says, the Lord is near. In every relationship, there are at least three persons. And the Lord is always the most important. I can defer to the other person because Jesus has taught me to do that. I can defer to the other person because I know he's at work in this relationship and because he is the person that matters most to me in the universe, so pleasing him is more important than getting my way. Pleasing this third person in that relationship, Jesus, is more important than me getting my way. If we're going to have peace, if we're going to give peace a chance, we must practice joy, We must practice deference. And I say in the outline, we practice dependence. We practice dependence. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So notice the contrast. It speaks about not being anxious about anything and then turns right around and says, but in everything, pray. So you don't worry about anything because in everything you pray. So don't raise your hands. It's a rhetorical question. Anybody here worried? Because that's the word for anxious in verse six. Do not worry about anything. Just last night, I got word about a situation that could be occasion for worry. And to be honest with you, if I were not at the time I got that information, looking over my stuff for today, preaching this message, then I may well have been one of those forgetful hearers and begin to fret about it. But it came while I was going over this message and I did what I'm preaching to you. Rather than worry, pray. The truth is, virtually everyone in this room feels almost overburdened by their cares. Nearly every person in this room could say, I'm too busy. There's too much to do. The demands are too great. The burdens are more than I can bear. My responsibilities are such that I can't do a good job on any of them. My money runs out before my bills do most months. My car needs attention. My kids need attention. My life needs attention. 
Hear this, friends. We must take God at his word and realize that there are no answers that are better than the Bible gives. And what God tells us is more important than what our therapist says. And more important than any drug. Both the therapist and the drug may be helpful. But what God says is most important. And what does the Bible say I, you and I get to worry about? What do we get to worry about? It says, do not be anxious, but then says about anything. So what do you get to worry about? Nothing. And it's a command, not a suggestion from Almighty God. So you mean don't worry about where my food is going to come from? Here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Why? Because, for, the pagans. Do you feel the weight of that? If we're doing that, we're acting like pagans. The pagans do this. The unbelievers do this. The pagans run after all these things. But you're not a pagan. You're not an unbeliever. You're a child of God and you have a heavenly father who knows that you need them. Worry is a universal problem, but the solution is universal as well. Prayer, independence on God. Verse 6 uses four words to describe various aspects or facets of the prayer that eliminates worry. Verse 6 uses the words prayer, petition, thanksgiving, request. They're all words for prayer. And there are differences between them. And they're in an order, listed in an order that, if followed, are a pathway, steps to peace. So what are you going to do with your worries? What are you going to do with your cares? I want to look briefly at these four words. And I want to acknowledge my indebtedness to Pastor Mark Minnick part of the explanation of this. You have the word prayer in verse 6. It's the most general term in the New Testament for prayer. Its usage here is not what you say, but your attitude, your spirit. It's saying, in effect, first of all, get prayerful. Go to prayer. So like when corralling a class in order to teach them, we might say, sit down and be quiet. So anxiety is a state of being pulled in every direction like teams of horses ready to pull you apart. What you first need to do is calm and quiet yourself before the Lord. Let me make a suggestion to you. When you're driving tomorrow, driving to work, driving the kids to school, turn the radio off. Turn the iPod off. Think about the Lord. Think about who he is and what he has done. Friends, you don't need more people barking at you and saying stuff to you. We got too many people talking to us, too many messages coming at us that are not the message of God. So just get silent, get quiet before God. And if nothing else, do that as you're driving in the car. And then be a petitioner. 
It's a word for begging, making a request from the position of one with no other recourse, putting your hand out. Putting your hand out in prayer, friends, you can actually do that. And I practice this myself when I'm praying. In fact, I don't know if you guys are looking when I'm praying up here, but a lot of times I'm doing that. I don't have any Italian in me, but I do some of this. But it's also, Lord, we're asking you for this. And this may well be what is meant in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, when Paul says, I invite all men to lift up holy hands in prayer. You say, well, look, I know I'm a beggar. That's why I'm so worried. (laughs) But no, the reason you're worried, hear this, is you're still trying to figure out something to do first rather than depending on God. Take the position of someone who says that unless God steps in, it's all lost. So, dear Heavenly Father, for Christ's sake, I ask you to do this. That's the position you take before him. And then there is thanksgiving. This one thing, if we were to all do it, engage in grateful thanksgiving to God on a regular basis, would heal most of us of what's going on. And that's not an exaggeration. You show me a joyless person, and I will show you an ungrateful person. The Bible says this, give thanks in all circumstances. Notice the word in all circumstances. But then the Bible says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 5, always give thanks to God the Father, notice now, for everything. Ephesians 5.20, like our passage in Philippians, was written while in prison. So Paul could have every excuse to be unthankful. And yet he writes, be thankful in everything and for everything, not because it's pleasant, but because you know God is at work in it. Now, what's the background that allows us to be thankful not only in everything but for everything? Just think for a moment. What do you know about everything that happens? What do you know about that? Well, here's one of the things you know about. The Bible says this, in everything, God works. You know that, don't you? The reason you can be thankful in and for everything is because you know something about everything. And the thing you know is this, that in everything God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So do you accept that? Do you receive that? Or are you avoiding that? That's contained in Romans 8. There are two sections in Romans 8. The first tells us that we're secure despite our remaining sinfulness. And the second section of Romans 8 says we're secure despite our troubles. Thankfulness. And then fourthly, requests. In verse 6. Now, finally, you come to the request. Do you see that? You come with this quiet attitude. You come with this humble attitude of a beggar. You come with thankfulness to God. And you communicate that thankfulness to God. And now, and only now, you come with the requests. You can't give your children what they need if they're complaining and proud and bitter and self-pitying and cranky. It would damage them to just continue then to give them what they need if they're in that state of mind and heart. They must settle down. They must come humbly. And you give them then all they need and more. Now, you might be asking, rightly, what about the relationship between my responsibilities and sinful worry? 
Surely you're not saying that I should be irresponsible and just pray that something happens, right? And indeed, the Bible concedes that there are cares in life, things for which we're responsible and therefore must give thought, attention, and effort. So, for example, married life, family life. 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible says a married man is concerned. And that word concerned is the same as anxious in Philippians 4, 6. A married man is concerned about how he can please his wife. A married woman is concerned about how she can please her husband. And these legitimate marital concerns multiply when children come along. Paul himself said of his own responsibilities, I face daily the pressure of my concern. Again, same word for all the churches. So the Bible concedes that there are cares in life to which we must give our energies. But the Bible still says worry about nothing. And it is true that it would be irresponsible to simply say the Lord will take care of it without giving it all he's given you. Did you hear what I just said? It would be irresponsible to say the Lord is just going to take care of it without making use of what he's given you. So here's my best shot at harmonizing those two things. My responsibility and leaving my concerns with God. I don't know who I'm quoting here. Someone else may. But it's work as if it all depends on you. And pray as if it all depends on God. Notice, even the work that we do is dependent on God. And the Bible teaches us this. Work to the best of your God-given ability and then don't worry about it. So you see that dynamic in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says of himself, I labor struggling. The Greek word is agonizo. We get our English word agonize from it. I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. So I'm working, but he's working. He's working in and through me. So while we do these three things, or when we do these three things, when we're joyful in our circumstances, gentle in our relationships, prayerful with our cares, God promises that in verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Christians do what leads to peace, and I say in your outline, and more quickly, much more quickly. Christians enjoy what results from peace. If we rejoice, show gentleness in our relationships and pray, the result is peace. A peace, I say in your outline, that comes from God. Because verse 7 says it's the peace of God. It's a peace that God is at the source of. He's the source of every kind of peace. He's the one who's taken the initiative to establish peace between us who were his enemies and between himself. He's the one that we thank when there's peace and unity in the church. He's the one we thank when we have that inner serenity that comes from knowing that he's in control. He gives it and he maintains it. So friend, you may be here today desperately wanting peace. You may be anxiously seeking for anything that will satisfy your emptiness and the turmoil of your soul. Please understand that peace is not found in your possessions. It's not found through relationships. It cannot be found in the pursuit of pleasure. God and God alone can satisfy the longings of your soul. And that's why the prophet Isaiah said to God, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. God and God alone is the source of peace. It comes from God. 
But I say in your outline, peace comes exclusively from God as well. And the peace of God, now notice, which transcends all understanding. The Bible's saying that the peace that God gives cannot be conjured up by us, and it cannot be fathomed by the natural human intellect. It's beyond our grasp to fully understand all that God does for us. So how do you explain, for example, Christian martyrs who were marched to their deaths with songs of praise on their lips and even smiles on their faces? How do you explain a Christian who faces a terrifying, troubling world with quiet serenity of soul? How do you explain Christians who stand beside the grave and through the tears can still smile and even rejoice? It's something that our minds cannot explain. We know a peace that only the sovereign God can give. It's no more possible for us to fully comprehend that peace than for a blind man to understand the glories of the sunset. This peace is from God. It's exclusively from God. And lastly, in your outline, peace keeps us in harmony with God and with others. Verse 7, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God is the thing which alone can give us peace of mind. It protects our minds. And the word guard used here was a military term in ancient times. It was used of a sentry who would stand guard at the post. One preacher described his vision as Paul was writing this while under house arrest. He said, try to imagine for a moment the Apostle Paul as he dictated this letter with one of his trusted co-workers sitting and writing. Imagine him as he comes to this point in the letter and he says, rejoice. Make known your gentleness, pray, and if you do these things, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will, will what? And then I imagine Paul pausing and thinking, let's see, how do I want to word this? The peace of God that passes all understanding will soothe your heart. And he says, no, that's not right. Will calm your heart. No, that's not what I want to say. And I picture him scratching his head, and as he does so, the chains from his wrists clank. And he's brought back to his circumstances. And he sees once again that guard to whom he's chained night and day. And he says, that's it. The peace of God that's beyond our understanding will stand guard on your hearts and on your minds. It will guard you. It will protect you against the negative effects of joylessness in circumstances Rancor and strife in relationships and anxiety in responsibilities. So, friends, we need to say, I will, by God's grace, obey his counsel. I will be joyful in circumstances, knowing he's at work. I will be gentle in relationships, knowing he's the most important person in them. I will say no to being anxious, and instead, I will take it to the Lord in prayer. I will, this week, get up. Get alone and settle my mind so that I'm prayerful in spirit. So that I adopt the view of a beggar. So that I ask for a grateful spirit. So that we're making no complaints and no accusations. And then I make my request to God. All your anxiety. All your care. Take it to the throne. And leave it there. First Peter 
5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you and the peace of God will be with you. Here's your take-home truth. Christians can have God's peace in all circumstances. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are so good to your children because you know our frailty, you know our tendencies, you know exactly what we need to be instructed on and reminded of. So thank you for this blessed passage of your word that meets us where we live. I pray, Lord, that the truth of your word will make a practical difference in the lives of your people this week. So that where there was fear, there will be joy. Where there was irritation, there might be harmony. Where there was ungratefulness, we might come before you with a mind filled with all that you've done for us and are ready to do for us. And may that then produce this peace in our lives this week. And may it make a difference in us, but then through us, so that people see that Jesus Christ and the serenity that only he can give has made this difference that passes all understanding. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.